Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. When Silas and Timothy came from Mac After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads! I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chencheria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, 
I will come back. If it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Perigia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and talked about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are traveling. They're in full evangelism mode, preaching the gospel. And notice they're being led by the Spirit. And anytime we do ministry, it has to be spirit-led if it's going to be productive. Amen? Now, I'm not saying if you don't get a vision or a clear word from God that you should sit still and do nothing. There's some things that we should always be doing. Amen? Did you know that? There's some things we should always be doing, and one of them is sharing the gospel every chance we get. So these guys had a mandate from the Lord. They're, they're going around. They're, uh, this is part of the second missionary journey. This chapter is going to shift into the third one. They're preaching the gospel, and they're producing fruit. And they wind up in Corinth, a city that we all know of because there's two incredible epistles that are eventually written to them. It's kind of interesting here as we're seeing Paul visit these places and realize these are the contacts he's making. These are the places where people are getting saved, where churches are being planted. And then these epistles are going to eventually be written to them that we read and enjoy. I mean, think about all the incredible theology in Romans and uh, first and second Corinthians, all of this stuff is being written to these little small fledgling churches. And uh, we're seeing them born here, and that's a pretty awesome thing. And Paul's traveling around, and you, you might think, well, what does it take uh, for God to start a move, for God to plant a church? All it takes is obedient servants to go and let the Lord fill their mouth. Amen. You don't need a degree. You don't need to know everything. You don't have to have an answer for everything. Some, some of us think, well, we have to have an answer for everything, and if we don't know, we should just make it up. You know, we'll just say something. It's okay to say, I don't know sometimes. You should remember that. You know, people will see us as more authentic if we don't try and be know-it-alls about things. There's certain things we don't know. And, you know, when we say, I, I don't know about that, maybe we should study it together. You open up an opportunity for them to see that the Lord... And his word answers questions, even when we don't know the answer, that we have the opportunity to dig for it in his word. Amen. So Corinth is a very wild city. It's like, uh, you know, where they would take spring break. You know, one of these wild, permissive cities. It was full of sin. It was full of immorality. The culture that was there was very permissive. And we see that the church planted there has a real struggle getting untangled from the culture and the immorality of that place. Realize the culture, the, you know, where churches are. You, you're going to see uh, there's a big difference between the way Western Christianity is and maybe the way they do it in Europe and, and in South America. 
there's cultural differences there. We should be very careful that we don't uh, treat our cultural differences as, as if they're biblical. Amen? Because we think, well, we do it this way, so this must be the way Jesus did it. Jesus spoke English and played guitar. Yes, we know. So culture is a factor there. Uh, verse 2 mentions two new players on the team. Uh, they are a, a devout Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And they had just been thrown out of Italy. So the Jews are in Italy. Claudius is the emperor there, and he throws, he throws all the Jews out of Italy. And they come out, and they meet up with Paul here. And I want you to see this. Aquila and Priscilla turn out to be a great blessing to Paul's ministry. But if we take a moment to understand how their meeting was facilitated, we're going to see how God works, and it's important that we do. Paul's pretty much been chased out of every place he's gone to preach the gospel. He's been beaten, he's been chased, he's been sent away by night, he's had to flee many times. One time, you know, they stoned him and just, they thought he was dead. We don't know if God rose him up from the dead, or he was playing dead, or what the deal was, but, you know, he's been chased and thrown out of everywhere. Now, Understand, here's Paul, he's moving from place to place, and at this time in, in Rome, the Jews are being expelled all at once by Claudius, and they're ordered to leave. So you got these two people being chased from different places, meeting up here in, in a place uh, just by, you know, as the world would say, chance. But it was a divine appointment. And note that hardships and injustices that we face in life, many times... Believers were moved around by persecution and hardship and injustice, and God used those as divine appointments to forge new relationships and to birth new things and to plant new churches. You know, when the Christians were expelled, every time they got forced to another place, you know what happened there? People got saved, and the church got planted, and then Christianity spread. That's why the more the world tries to oppose the church and persecute the church, the quicker and faster it spreads. You can't beat the kingdom of God. Man can't extinguish the fire of God. He can push it around as God allows, but everywhere it goes, it's going to put down roots and it's going to bear fruit. Come on, someone say amen. amen. Hardships and injustices many times turn into opportunities and blessings. Please tuck that in your heart, and you're going to need to remember it at some junctures in life. What the devil means for harm, God turns around and uses for good. You know, this works best when we're dead center in the middle of God's will and following God's purpose for our life. You know, I, I see people doing wrong stuff and having wrong attitudes and being half in the kingdom and half out of the kingdom and then quote a scripture out of context. God works all things together for the good of them who do whatever they want and make big messes and make poor choices. Come on, this works when you're dead center in the middle of God's will. Not when you got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Not, not when you're, you know, full of, you know, when you're filling your eyes and your heart with things that you shouldn't be looking at and you think, well, God's just going to bless me and turn my mess into blessing. No, it works best when we're doing exactly what we're supposed to do. That's what you see in Paul's life. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't spinning his tires. He wasn't taking a break somewhere. He didn't just, you know, uh, take a sabbatical, quit his ministry. He was right in the middle of what God called him to do. And by divine appointment, you got one group of people being chased out of Rome, Paul being chased everywhere, and they meet up, and it is a blessing that is going to, 
produce fruit in everyone's life. Verse 3, Paul and Aquila hit it off because they have something in common. They have a trade in common. Uh, they were both in the, the local 27 tent makers union. And these guys were skilled tent makers. Now, many ministers, and we even see this, many evangelists and many missionaries are bivocational. What does bivocational mean? It means they do two things. They have a skill that pays the bills, and, and they can use it to finance their ministry. You see this a lot of time with missionaries and evangelists, okay? Understand, uh, we're going to see that God definitely makes place for the church to support those who are in full-time ministry, but you, we shouldn't be afraid to be bivocational. It's, you know, God can use that. He can use our skills to finance the things of the kingdom, and we shouldn't get so overly spiritual that we think, well, we can't do any productive ministry unless we quit our very lucrative, prosperous job and go into the ministry and work for a third of what we could bring into the kingdom. I've seen that so many times. Don't despise wherever God has you. If it's productive and it's blessed and it's his will, he'll use it to finance kingdom things. Come on, say amen tonight. So he was bivocational. Paul had a skill. Interesting. Here's a guy who is so learned, so skilled, sat under Gamaliel. He's a theological genius. And yet he took the time to learn how to do something productive with his hands. That should speak to all of us. Okay? So he's a tent maker. Uh, Aquila's a tent maker. They kind of hit it off. Verse 4, while Paul is working making tents, he's also working persuading the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue. So there's an example of evangelism being done in a bivocational way. Paul was not afraid to roll up his sleeves and earn his keep, and he did it uh, many times, and we see him doing it here. Uh, it says here that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So that was the form of what he did. He was constantly going first to the synagogue. We see a little bit down the road here, he kind of gets frustrated. I like the way they acted that scene out. It, it portrays the frustration of what Paul was doing. Uh, verse 5, Silas and Timothy relieve Paul of the burden of supporting himself. They come and they support him, and he dedicates all of his time to the word. Verse 5 is important. It shows that shift. Yes, he was willing to roll up his sleeves and do what he had to do to further the gospel. But look, when Silas and Timothy came down to Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So you see that? What was his real anointing? Not making tents. He was willing to do that, okay? But his real gift and his real anointing was preaching the word. This is a guy, I say it over and over again, who's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He, Romans is a theological masterpiece. It's brilliant in its form and its function in the way it's laid out. Yes, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the Apostle Paul was no lightweight. So what does he do? These guys, they come and support him so he can devote himself fully to the word. That's so important. That we, if when we can, we use our primary gift so we have maximum impact. I don't know if people got saved when they walked into Paul's tents. Oh, the anointing in this tent. But I know that for forever, since the words he penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit have been changing lives. 
So use your primary gift whenever you can and devote yourself to it. Silas and Timothy, relieve him. It's very biblical for the church to support full-time ministry. It's very biblical for us to support those who have giftings to profit the body of Christ and to reach the lost. Verse 6, Paul gives it his best effort with the Jews. He brings the gospel to the Jews first because what? It's to the Jew first, then the Gentile. So he's doing his due diligence. And he, he gives this season of undivided perseverance and dedication because he's being supported now by his team. And the result of all this effort is chronicle in verse 6. Then when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I am going to the Gentiles. Wow. And I really like the way they portrayed this in the video because I think it captures the heart of what's happening here in the text because there's no way you could study and argue and debate and reason and have patience and have patience and have patience. Do you realize how frustrating it was for him because his eyes were open and he could see the clarity of who Jesus was but these guys were still blind as a bat. It's like trying to get a blind, you're trying to describe the color purple to a blind person. It's frustrating. So Paul is frustrated and he, he does his due diligence, but he does, he almost does snap a little bit. He's like, it's on you guys now. Your blood's on your own head. And you know what? There's only so much men can do for us when we're stubborn. There's only so much we could do for people who refuse the gospel. There's only so much we can do for our own children before they have to do it themselves. Hello? You, you, you can't be making a 45-year-old's bed and pulling the crust off his peanut butter and jelly. Bringing it down to the basement with a big glass of strawberry quick. Mommy's little baby. Spiritually, that's, that's what we got to some degree sometimes. We got to grow up. Paul had enough. He said, I'm done with you guys. It's on you. You know, I've done everything I could. I'm sure he felt the release of the Holy Spirit. Your blood is on your own head. I'm going to the Gentiles. This is his real call anyway. Uh, and he, he's productive at it, and he's going to give himself over to it. So, you know, Paul is undeterred. They do blaspheme. They do resist. But He's not quitting the ministry. He's just going to focus in a different area that at that moment is more productive. So verse 7, Paul sets up his base of operation in the house next door to the temple. Now, this is kind of interesting here. Uh, it really paints a picture. It says he left, what, the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. It, I mean, it's kind of almost, I don't know if it'll laugh or cry here. He's arguing with these guys. He's trying to, and he goes, I'm done with you guys. He moves next door. <laughs> All right, we're going to set up base here. Do you realize that means they had to watch him come in and out? They had to watch him minister. They had to hear the report. I mean, it was right there. A little awkward. Yet God uses it as a picture of the fact that, hey, guys, this was open to you. And you rejected it, so we're just going to move over here. You're going to see what the kingdom of God does and how the Gentiles receive it and how the blessing is there. And, and you could have had it, and you need to see it because it's supposed to make you jealous so that you want to receive instead of rejecting Christ as well. 
Scripture says that plainly in a few places, that the way God blesses and prospers the Gentiles and the church is there to provoke the Jews, to make them jealous, to look for the Messiah and to receive Christ. They rejected him the first time. When he returns, they are going to receive him. And the Bible says, in a day, all of Israel will be saved. What a glorious day that will be. I look forward to it. And I hope you do, too. As usual... Uh, fruit is produced in Paul's efforts. Uh, he's producing fruit with the Gentiles. It's always encouraging to see some sort of results. Can we say amen? amen. You know, I think about Noah preached for all them years and, you know, not too many converts. I think there was more room on the ark, you know, but people rejected the message. Paul produces fruit here. Uh, in verse 8, it talks about a leader in the synagogue who opposes here, and we see some things happening. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. So there's some fruit, Crispus believes. Uh, there is some persecution coming. Many of the Corinthians who heard, believed, and were baptized. So that's fruit, that's good. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in a vision uh, by night. So there again, God is still leading Paul supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, dreams and visions. Uh, some of you have had those. Some of you have been led that way. And God still does that. This is what the dream says, and it's Jesus speaking to him. Do not be afraid any longer, but go and speak and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, I want to stop there and take a, a look at this here. This is kind of interesting. Paul has this vision and, you know, he's had resistance from the Jews. He's seen a little fruit produced among the Gentiles. But the vision is interesting. Jesus says to him, don't be afraid any longer. Did you pick that up? What is that? By implication, that means when you say don't be afraid any longer, that means you, you were afraid. And here's what I want you to see. Uh, somehow, some way, he says, don't be afraid any longer. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. So maybe Paul was like shrinking back a little bit. Paul, though he had been obedient, he had produced some fruit. He's a mighty apostle. To some degree, we must conclude from what Jesus says to him that to some degree he was operating in a spirit of fear. And here's why. Because he had been through some really incredible stuff. God takes time to address the fear, tells him not to be afraid anymore, and delivers him from it. Now, fear is something that all of us are going to experience from time to time. No matter how much faith we have, no matter how tough we think we are, there are circumstances, there are situations, and there are personalities that can make us fearful. Now, here's the thing. All of us are going to experience fear, but none of us like to admit it. So what happens is it lives below the surface and we're in denial about it and we're operating in the spirit of fear. We're restrained some way, but maybe we're not even aware of it. Maybe Paul wasn't even aware of it, that he had taken one too many beatings, one too many stonings, one too many arguments, and something inside him was a little bit beat up. Come on, have you ever been there? God takes the time to encourage us, to refresh us, and to restore us. There's no shame and being beat up and beat down if you're doing it for the kingdom of God. Now, there's two kinds of suffering. There's foolish suffering and there's redemptive suffering. If you've made foolish choices, reckless decisions, if you've dipped your foot in sin and you're suffering now, enjoy your redemptive suffering. Because you know what? Sometimes we need a good beating so that we don't go back in the pig pen anymore and we stay close to the Father. 
Okay? You know, and so that foolish suffering that there is, you know, some redemption in that and that we learn not to do anything uh, the same way again and make the same mistakes. But when it's full-on redemptive suffering, it's real interesting. We're doing all the right things. And still there's persecution attached to it. Paul was doing all the right things. Doesn't say, you know, there was any sin in him, there was any compromise in him. He was doing the right stuff. Now, we're not at that place many times in life. So savor the moment. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be insulated from persecution in those moments as well. So he was beat up and he was operating in a spirit of fear. Jesus takes the time to deliver him from it. Isn't that beautiful? He says to him, nobody is going to attack you or harm you anymore. Okay, I have many people in this City. So he encourages him. You're not the only one. There are other people here. I have, I, have, I have support for you. I have protection for you. No one is going to attack you. Why would he say that unless somewhere in the recesses of Paul's heart, it's like, I can't take another stoning. I can't take another beating. Not now, Lord. I can't. I'm, and maybe he's struggling. So understand, God understands our weakness. He understands our fears. And instead of being in denial about fear, let's be humble enough to admit our fears so that the Lord can strengthen them. Man, it's quiet tonight. I'll move on in three or four hours. We'll get through this. Verse 12, Paul is eventually opposed there. He ministers for a solid six months. He produces fruit. That's a big investment in this region here. Remember, the Corinthian church is going to be a powerful, pivotal church. So he invests six solid months of teaching and strengthening the body of making converts. But eventually in verse 12, the persecution comes. The religious Jews rise up against him. And look what verse 12 says. This is interesting to me. But Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, and the Jews with one accord, say one accord. With one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. So what I want you to see there is that they rose up in one accord. What does that mean? They were unified in rejecting Paul's message and in delivering him before the judgment seat. Unity. Anytime there's unity, we should pay attention to it. Isn't it interesting how... The enemy can somehow, someway unify all of his minions to do the work of the kingdom of darkness. But the body of Christ is fractured and fragmented and separated and divided. Come on. You know, and we, we're so used to it that you, you might not even realize that that's the condition of the church. But we're divided by ethnicity, by socioeconomic things. We're divided by culture. We're divided by theology. There's some churches you, you could go into, and if, you, you know, if your theology doesn't square up right with theirs on the eschatology or what you believe about the end times, they, they won't let you be a member of their church. There are places you could go where if you dare exercise any of the gifts of the Spirit, they'll call you the devil and throw you out. The body's fragmented and divided. And when there's brokenness in the body uh, and fragmented body doesn't function properly, yet here's the enemy and he has unity, and his minions get together, and all in one accord, they rise up against Paul and reject the gospel. God help us to get unity in the church. Amen. Boy, do we need it. The power that flows from unity is incredible. So they deliver him in unison. <laughs> they bring him to the judgment seat. Paul is brought there by the mob. The pro-council Gallio hears the charges, and immediately he's not impressed with the charges. He, he's... 
they say he's teaching things that are contrary to the law. So as soon as Gallio hears that it's the law and it's their law in verse 14 through 16, he refuses to judge Paul. Now, some church, uh, some historians of the day and some church historians uh, thought that maybe Gallio was uh, partial to Paul, had some sort of relationship or affinity with him. Maybe even he was entertaining the message of the gospel and he wasn't favorable to these uh, religious legalistic people, but he shows favor towards Paul. It, it's, you know, it's, it's up for grabs. That could be the situation. But he hears, oh, it's your law, and he refuses to judge it. He's like, I won't judge these things. And uh, he basically says, it's your law. You go figure it out yourself. And he kicks the whole matter out of the court. Woo, case dismissed. Bang. Wish I had a gavel. And so that, that's a good thing for Paul. Verse 17 shows just the nature of the beast here. The angry mob, now they can't touch Paul because Gallio just stood up for him and basically said, you know, I'm not judging this. So they wouldn't dare touch Paul there, but they do snatch up Sosophanes, who is the leader of the, you know, he, he's, the, he's the leader of the synagogue, the chief ruler. So what do they do? They turned on their own guy. They're like, they were mad at him because you, you convinced us to bring this bum case in here. You got us all embarrassed and thrown out. Now we can't touch Paul. So they throw him a religious beat down. See the ugly nature of a religious spirit? It's a mob thing. There's not much good about religion. Religion is man's rules and man's system and man's way of approaching God. Thank God we understand around here that it's all about relationship and not about rules. Not that we just can live any way we want, but when we walk close to him, he leads us and guides us and we come in line with the word. But these guys had no love in their heart. They had hate in their heart. They had violence in them. In fact, since they couldn't take it out on Paul, somebody had to get a beating and guess who they picked? The chief ruler of the synagogue. You guys look way too serious. I'm having more fun with this than you are. Uh, it's just, it's incredible to me that they do this, and they beat him up, and it shows here at the end, Paul tries to comfort him. Uh, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but that was a nice touch. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, buddy, best of luck to you. So the wicked consume themselves in their attempt to destroy the righteous. Remember that. Did you hear what I said? The wicked consume themselves in their attempt to destroy the righteous. Those people who are against you, who oppose you because you love Jesus and, and, and because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and they just don't like you. In their attempt to destroy you, they destroy themselves. Do you remember Haman? Haman hung by his own gallows. Remember that? He had the gallows built to, to, to hang Mordecai. Pastor Frank's distant cousin right there. It's pronounced Mordecai. They just mess it up. But he, he was going to hang him on those gallows. And God said, oh, no, you're not. You're not hanging him. You're going to hang by your own gallows. Do you see that? Listen to what the scripture says, Psalm 57, 6. And they prepared a net for my steps. My soul bowed down. They dug a pit for me. They themselves have fallen in the midst of it. Proverbs 28, 10. He who leads the upright astray in evil will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Come on, shout a little bit if you're saved. Amen. God protects us. God sustains us. God turns the wicked who plan destruction against us, and they fall into their own pit. They hang in their own gallows. Now, we don't wish that on them, but God 
Vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. Verse 18, Paul stays in the region until the Holy Spirit moves him out of the region. He's not driven out by evil, wicked men who oppose the gospel. And I like that. He takes Aquila and Priscilla with him, and they set out to Syria. Verse 18 talks about the fact that Paul shaved his head. Why? Because it was summertime and he wanted a mohawk? No. When our kids were little, we used to shave their heads into mohawks in the summertime. And secretly, Dad wished he could shave his too but knew that the church would freak out on Sunday. <laughs> Paul shaves his head. Why? Because he had taken a Nazarite vow. And the, the, the Nazarite would shave his head when things in his life needed to be reset. It was like a, st a start over. Now, a Nazarite was not supposed to drink strong drink or, or alcohol, and he was not to cut his hair or shave his face. It, there was a couple things that a Nazarite would do. Paul shaves himself bald as a Nazarite to show he, it's a reset. Interesting. Now you say, well, why did he do that? It was, it was going to give him credibility again there with some of the Jews that he would minister to, that they would see his piousness and they would see his righteousness, and that would kind of be a little in with them. Remember, Paul's the guy who said, be all things to all men that you might win some. So he's willing to do whatever it takes, even shave his hair off. And he knows there's no spiritual, spirituality in it, that there's no, it doesn't make him more acceptable to God. It doesn't make, you know, God's like, oh, this is, you're my favorite now, Paul. No, he knows salvation is a free gift of grace. It's not by works. But he does this just to make himself more appealing to those he's about to minister to. Yeah, he was done with the Jews there, but he knew he would still encounter Jews and he would still preach them the gospel. And so he does a reset, takes his hair off. Don't try that at home. Just that was something the Holy Spirit prompted him to do. Verse 19, after leaving Corinth, he winds up in Ephesus. Does that sound like a familiar place? The book of Ephesians, what an amazing book. He heads to the synagogue there and he begins reasoning with them. We all know what that means. It's Advil time. He's reasoning with them. Verse 20 and 21, their response to the gospel is that they need more time. <laughs> you know, and I said, usually the people who, you know, need more time are just finding some way to scrutinize it or reject it or excuse themselves from it. So what does Paul do? Paul says, okay, I'll stay and I'll argue with you until my hair falls out and my teeth loosen up. No, he says, I, I'm not giving you any more time. I'm, I'm out of here. But if the Holy Spirit lets me come back, I'll come back. <laughs> Maybe he was thinking, well, I ain't coming back. <laughs> you know, uh, he's going he's gonna to reason with them at another time, but he doesn't waste a whole lot of time there. And that's part of the reset for him. He is going to focus more on the Gentiles because he's having more success with them. He's called to them. They want more time, but their time is up. Realize that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he's near. Today is the day of salvation. None of this is in my notes. I'm just riffing right now, okay? Understand something. We all, oh God, I need more time. Oh, God, well, maybe just give me another year. God, maybe let me pray about it. We tell God we're going to pray about it. God's like, I, I already prayed about it. How about you just listen? Oh, help us, Lord. Paul packs up, heads out. The Holy Spirit uh, may or not, you know, bring him back in, in due time, and that's up to the Holy Spirit. He leaves it up to them. Uh, verse 22, he heads back to his home base church in Antioch, and he reports all his doings to their, them. So he's a mighty apostle. 
He's equal to Peter. I mean, he's got the same spirit in him. He's doing an incredible work, yet he makes himself accountable to leadership. Did, did you see that? No lone rangers in the kingdom of God. All of us got to answer to others. Hello. And even the Apostle Paul does too. So if you ever get so big for your britches that you think nobody can tell you what to do, get ready. You might want to put a phone book in your britches because you're going to get a spanking from the Holy Spirit. Okay? We have always got to submit. And that we can, we're not the head. Jesus is the head. You say, oh, well, Pastor Rick, you, you're the pastor. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> do you know leadership is on the shortest leash of all? I can't go where I want. Do you think I want to live in New Yorkistan? Look, baby, I'm Texas. Those are my people. I walked into McDonald's. They had deer heads in the McDonald's. Those are my people. That was, uh, they had to get me back on the plane at gunpoint. I did not want to leave. So, you know, leadership is on the shortest leash of all. You want to be a leader. You want to be in the kingdom. You want to use your gifts. Short leash. <laughs> I see what some, you know, pedestrian pew sitters get away with. And I'm almost like, whew, I couldn't do that. And God's going, that's right. You couldn't do that. So, you know. Everyone has to answer to higher powers. He does. He makes himself accountable. And that's a good lesson for us, and it's something good for us to take a look at. Now, verse 23 kicks off the third missionary journey. He reports back to home base. He regroups. He goes back out. Uh, Paul leaves Antioch, and he goes to Galatia and Phrygia, and he builds up the churches there. So more of the same, he's doing what he does. He's using his gift. He has a support structure, uh, and he's producing fruit. Now, verse 24 and 25 are interesting. We see a new player added to the mix here, and he's quite an interesting guy. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Boy, I like that description. You know, this guy was full of the word. Have you ever met people who are full of it? <laughs> Come on. I like this description. This guy was full of the word. He was mighty in the scriptures. Wow. I like that. We should spend so much time in the word that it just flows out of us with an anointing, that people would just hear what comes out of us because of what we've allowed the Holy Spirit. Man, let's all be mighty in the scriptures. It says, this man had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So I want you to see something here. This guy's powerful. He studied the scripture. He knows everything that's been revealed to him, but still he doesn't have the full picture. You know, that's why we are at the partial gospel center or the half of the gospel center. We're the full gospel center. Hello, you need the full gospel, amen? Well, you know, I just like a couple of the epistles, but, you know, I just like the Old Testament. That, you know, Jesus is a little too hardcore for me, or I just like eschatology, man, the book of Revelation. Woo, I'll just spend all. No, you need a full, balanced understanding of the word from Genesis to Revelation. Hello? And, and you know, this guy, he was mighty in what he knew. He had spiritual gifts that were productive, but he didn't have the full picture. Man, I cannot compete with that baby. When he walks in, they just ignore me. I'm telling you what. Are you, are you done? Are you done? 
I know he's cute. I used to be cute, too. So, you know, Apollos is a welcomed addition here. He's learned. He's articulate. He's a powerful public speaker. He's an apologist for the faith. But look what he does. Uh, verse 24 and 25 tell all about him that he's vocal and effective. And, and he still he doesn't have the full entire picture. So, you know, we can be faithful for what we have. You know, even if we don't know everything, if you don't have the entire picture, be faithful with what you got. Amen. And this guy's about to get the full gospel because Aquila and Priscilla, they see him and they're listening to him. And they're both, you know, I would love to have heard what they were saying. They're like, this guy's dynamite. Oh, listen to this guy. I mean, he's powerful. And he's talking about, and they're going, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then they're going, something's missing. You see, it's good for us to have discernment that even though somebody's gifted, we should be able to notice if something's missing. There's a lot of people who are preachers, who have ministries, and I've heard them say things that didn't line up with this. And people are like, oh, but, you know, I mean, so, so what? You know, I mean, look at the size of the church and look at the, on TV and look at It's got to line up with this. And if it doesn't, we should at least notice. Now, don't be like some of these really narrow-minded denominations that, you know, are not leading anybody to Christ, and they got 13 people left in their church, and they're the frozen chosen, and they're baptized in lemon juice, and they're, well, we don't want kids here, and we don't want young people. We, don't, we just want to be, you know, baptized in lemon juice for Jesus. And I, I'm, I'm just being real with you, because what, what do they say? Those kind of denominations, I'm not going to say, but everybody's a false teacher. Oh, he's a false teacher, and he's a false, and then Joel Osteen's a false, and this guy's a false teacher. Everybody who doesn't line up with their narrow-minded, two-circuit theology that leaves out half of the fullness of the gospel is a false teacher. They didn't go up there and go, Paulus, you, you don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are a false teacher. You see why I'm exhausted all the time? They said, hey, buddy, you're awesome. You got the spirit of God in you. You obviously have an anointing and the gift of God. Why don't you come here? Come to our house. We want to clue you in onto what you don't know. Because when you find out you only know about John's baptism, you're about to get the Holy Ghost. We're about to put some power on this anointing and this gifting. Come on, someone should be excited here tonight. There's always something for us to learn. There's always a new dimension. There's always deeper water. There's always more power. There's always more consecration. There's always more anointing. Yes. But we've got to be humble enough to hear. Well, who are they talking to? Did they hear me speak? Did they see the size of my church? Did they know how many books I wrote? <sighs> Thank God Apollos was humble enough to hear from them and to sit and to learn and to get the full picture. So Priscilla and Aquila in verse 26, they bring them up to speed. And, you know, it's a good thing. They tell them, you know, go meet the rest of the, uh, verse 27 and 20, go meet the rest of the church. Uh, the, the church embraces him. The, the, the apostles hear about him. Nobody's jealous of him. Nobody's competitive with him. And this is a good model for us. When we see people being genuinely used by God, full of the Holy Spirit, producing fruit, we shouldn't just be jealous or oppose them or go well why, why don't I have that gift well probably because your attitude 
right? But we need to celebrate people who are gifted to the body. This guy was powerful. Look what it says. He argued with the Jews. He would get right in their face and through the scriptures, he would shut them up. He was, a, he was an apologist, much like Robbie Zacharias is for our generation. Thank God for people like that in the body of Christ who can articulate things with intelligence and refute the intellectuals and the cynics and the atheists skillfully with an anointing. That was Apollos. And the body received him, and the body needs people like him, and we should be willing to celebrate God's giftings in others, not to be territorial and not to be jealous, but to rejoice that we're all part of one body. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight. For this book and I thank you Lord that Father the word breaks the power of the devil and Father the enemy resists us and he pushes back and he doesn't want us to grow and I thank you for these people who are here tonight who have come to hear the word I pray that Father even what we heard that didn't even click with us that you've tucked into our heart Holy Spirit just revealed to us the deep mysteries of your word and I pray tonight Lord God that we would use our gifts and use our anointings and we would function as evangelists and we would share the gospel with power and with authority but most of all we would share it with love because it's love that draws people not intellectualism not theology not forcefulness of speech or articulate speaking but Lord it's the love that God has sent his only begotten son to die in our place, that sinners can be made saints. Help us to be those, like Paul, to dispense the good news of the gospel because the world is hurting for it, Lord, and we're the answer to somebody's prayer. So thank you. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen.